0: Acts chapter 2. Today we're going to be talking about where we are as a church, as a church body, Reality Carpinteria, and where we need to go from here. We're going to be looking at the Word of God for our direction. Very important that you listen and respond today. Where we are as a church and where we should go from here. And we will find direction here in Acts chapter 2. Starting in verse 41, it says, so then those who had received the word were baptized and there were added that day about 3000 souls. You remember that it's Pentecost. Peter just preached a sermon. 3000 are saved. Verse 42, and they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions, and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day, those who were being saved. Lord, we ask today that you would clearly guide us in your word as a church. We look to you, Jesus. We proclaim you to be the head of the church and we look to you for direction. And Lord, the cry of our heart in response to scripture is that we want to know you more, Lord. We want to love you more. We want to serve you more effectively and efficiently. And Lord, we want to know one another. We want to love one another and care for one another and be subject to one another. Lord, we want our church to function as a healthy living organism, as your body under your guidance. And so Lord Jesus, guide us today. Speak to us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We see in verse 41 that Peter had preached on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people were converted. A tremendous harvest. Praise the Lord. 3,000 saved at this preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost. But those 3,000 converts, new believers, presented a unique set of challenges and problems to the early church. Namely, how do you take 3,000 converts and make them disciples? Because you'll remember the command of the Lord was not to merely make converts, but to make disciples. And how do you take these brand new converts and see to it that they become disciples of Jesus Christ? How do you get such a large group, 3,000 in one day? to interact with one another in such a way that they might live out the commands of Scripture, that they might push each other toward godliness and toward holiness, that they might interact rightly. How do you take a large group and make discipleship happen? How do you see to it that biblical relational principles are played out when there are thousands of people? We have verses that guide us in how the members of the church ought to interact with one another. Jesus told us in John thirteen thirty four through 35, that we ought to love one another. He said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know, that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. We are told in the scriptures that we are to forgive one another. Colossians three twelve through 13. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you forgive. We are called in the scriptures to restore one another. Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 and 2 says, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, You who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each looking to yourselves so that you too will not be tempted. And bear one one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. We are told as Christians to pray for one another. James chapter 5 verse 16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. We are called to be continually encouraging each other. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. We are called to watch over and watch out for one another's hearts. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are called to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Hebrews ten twenty four and 25. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the, do- the day drawing near. Now, how did the early church who in their first day had 3,000 new converts, who a few months later would number 5,000 men, meaning at least 15,000 people total. How would this quickly growing brand new church see to it that discipleship was worked out and that biblical relational principles had an opportunity to play out in the lives of each other? How do we, Reality Carpenteria, As a growing church, make sure that these relational commands have opportunity to play out in our lives. Understand that all of these commands that we just read require relationship. It means that we've got to be involved in one another's lives. They occur within a sense of community and mutual accountability. But in a church this size, it's easy to slip through the cracks. It's easy to hide in the back. It's easy to miss community or avoid accountability. And it can even be hard to develop relationships when there's hundreds of people moving around you. And the same problem was in the early church. And so how did they address it? The remedy is given to us right here in verse 46. Read with me very carefully. Acts 2.46 says, And they were day by day Continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. I want you to see that generally speaking, there were two sorts of meetings that were taking place in the early church. There was a gathering on the large scale. As they would meet in the temple grounds, all of the believers together. There they were in the larger context. But the second sort of meeting that took place in the early church was house to house. They would break up into smaller groups, go into their homes and fellowship there, fewer in number in a more intimate setting. It's important to see that both were taking place, the large context and the smaller one in the early church. And this is the way that God has always intended it to be. Early on in the Bible, in the first five books, God established the feasts for the nation of Israel, the celebrations, the memorials. And for some of those, he said, you are to celebrate it in your home with your family and perhaps your neighbors. And so there was to be a small, intimate celebration of the Lord in the home setting. But he also said to Israel that they were all required to appear before the Lord three times a year at the high festivals, at the high feasts in Jerusalem at the temple. And so God established from the beginning that fellowship among the brethren would include the small meeting and the large one. He required both of Israel. And when they got together three times a year, it was called a holy convocation, a holy gathering. And it is the wisdom of God revealed in the scriptures that tells us that both are required for a healthy spiritual community, a large gathering where we all come together and celebrate and worship the Lord and hear the word and smaller ones where we could interact on a more personal level. We see it reflected in Judaism, even in the days of old with the temple existing at the same time as synagogues. We hear much to do about the house church movement today that people say that the large church gathering should be disbanded, that it's not biblical, and that really people should only meet in homes. That is a biblically incorrect idea. We see throughout the Bible that there were always both, and I'll show you in a minute how both were always intended by the church, the large gathering and the smaller one. Now, In certain nations, such as in Muslim nations, where it's illegal to have a church, therefore you must have, because of that persecution, only home churches. In certain Muslim nations where we're engaged in missionary work, you can't simply throw up a building and a steeple and a cross and say, come on in, it's not legal, nobody will come, it doesn't work that way. And so there are in those places home churches. But listen, when the Lord comes back, He will set all things how He wants them to be. Your homework for this week is to read Zechariah chapter 14. There we have the second coming of the Lord. And everything is just as He wants it. He is on the throne ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. And you will read this week in the last part of Zechariah 14. That every year the Lord commands of the nations that they should all gather before Him in Jerusalem and celebrate the Lord. In the millennial kingdom, when everything is just as the Lord wants it, He is still saying to my people, I want you to gather together as many as possible and come and worship me. He's so serious about it that you'll read in Zechariah 14 that those nations who refuse to come up to Jerusalem and celebrate the Lord, it says there that the Lord causes the rain to cease from falling upon the land and that their land dries up. There is a lesson in that for you and I. And for those who would say we should only have house churches, that God calls his people together on a large scale as much as possible. And he says, for those of you that refuse to do so, there are dry times coming your way. And so we see from the beginning of God's program to the end that he has ordained the large gathering and the small, that is God's heart and intention. And that was the practice of the early church. We saw there in verse 46 that they were all gathered together in the temple, big enough place where the new believers could congregate. But they also went from house to house, large corporate times, small intimate get togethers. And they did the large ones wherever they could. Understand that in that time 2000 years ago, you couldn't necessarily just uh, build a church building, you know what I mean, and, and also the early church experienced a lot of persecution. But wherever they could gather, they would. We already saw in that verse that they gathered in the temple. Acts chapter 5 verse 12 tells us that they were doing that again. It says, and at the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, a part of the temple there. And the last verse of Acts chapter 5, verse 42 says, And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The early church would gather on large scale wherever they could. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we see them gathered together on the Mount of Olives. In Acts 21, verse 5, we see the believers gathered together on the beach, praying together. And we see repeatedly in the book of Acts that they're gathered together in a large upper room in Acts 1 and in Acts 2. And so the pattern of the early church was large corporate gatherings wherever and whenever they could. But the situation in which they live dictated that the home setting was very effective and oftentimes uh, more allowable for them to do, and we read of many homes in the New Testament that the early church met in. In Acts twelve twelve, we read of Mary's house. In Acts sixteen forty, it's Lydia's house. In Acts seventeen five, it's Jason's house. In Acts twenty eight twenty three through thirty, it's the place that Paul was staying in Rome. In Romans 16.5, it's the home of Priscilla and Aquila. In Colossians 4.15, we hear of Nympha's house and the church that was gathered there. In Philemon chapter 2, we read of the church that was gathered in Philemon's house. And so throughout the New Testament, we see them gathered together in homes. Now, part of this is because that's the way God ordained it, and part of it was because of the cultural, sociological, and political situation of the day, that they lived in a situation of persecution. And you remember, it wasn't always hunky-dory for the Christians. It wasn't like you and I, that we could gather in a huge building in the middle of town and just praise the Lord as loud as we want. Christians were being killed for their faith in Jesus Christ as a Messiah by both Jews and Romans. Thousands upon thousands of Christians were thrown to the lions in the in the Roman theaters. Many were slain at Jewish swords, they were losing their lives. And so often they met covertly in home settings. But we see from history that whenever the church had the opportunity, they would get together en masse as large as they could. Even in a time of persecution, they were driven underground in Rome to the catacombs. And we have historical evidence that hundreds of Christians gathered together in the catacombs to worship the Lord. And we know from history that when Rome became a Christian nation under constantine, that then we have appearing in history large church buildings. That now it wasn't illegal to be a Christian anymore. They weren't threatened out out, uh, uh, at their lives. And so they added to the home meetings, once again, large meetings, large context, holy convocations, and large buildings. This is the design of God for His people. And it's in the large gathering where we develop a broad sense of Community where we all understand that we are a part of something bigger, the body of Christ. It's bigger than just our immediate body. It's the church of Jesus Christ worldwide. Amen. But here we are on this coastline, those who are called together, gathered, and it's at these large times where we get a sense of broad community. It is also in the large gathering where we become of one mind and one accord. We're told in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, that they were in the temple with one mind, we're told in Acts 5.12, that they were in the temple with one accord. That when we come together on Sunday mornings, the Spirit of God, through the Word of God, speaks to us. And He puts us on the same page, you understand. And He unites our hearts. And He does this, a, a, a corporate work in us. And it's in this context where we are made of one mind and one accord. And so the church should be. But then we break it down into the home group setting where intimacy is developed, relationships are developed. Psalm 133 behold and behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell in unity, where a tighter sense of community and unity are nurtured. It is in that setting where accountability takes place. Where you make yourself accountable and hold others accountable And so both are designed by God for God's people. But what we need to be mindful of at this juncture with our young church is the home group context. We're just over two years old and we've been growing very quickly and we continue to grow numerically. But listen to me now, we need to be mindful, cognizant and purposeful of this. That as we grow numerically, we need to work hard, strive together in the spirit to grow in depth of spirituality. It would be a tragedy to just grow large. We want to grow deep. And church, we've got to be mindful of that at this juncture. The large gathering is happening and it's going well. The Lord is blessing. There's always room to grow and to get better, but the Lord is generally blessing and he's speaking to us and leading us. But what we need to be mindful now of is that biblical model of the house meeting, of the home group. We've got to commit ourselves to this idea if we are going to grow in depth of relationship with the Lord and with one another. This is where the Lord is taking our church. This is what we need to be mindful of. And so I want to say in the large group gathering now that it is an expressed vision and goal of Reality Carpinteria that every person that calls this church home is involved in and committed to a home group. I want to say it again. It is the express goal and vision of Reality Carpenteria and its leadership that everybody that calls this church home is involved in and committed to a home group. Listen, it is in this smaller context where life change really takes place. It's in this smaller context when we get into one another's lives that stuff really starts happening. I testified today that about 90% of my spiritual growth happened in home groups. There was a time in my early 20s where Kate and I, you know, we, we weren't that into Sunday morning church, to be quite honest. You know, Sunday morning was a surf day for us. And if the surf was good, we weren't surfing. If the surf wasn't good, then we'd show up at church. But at nighttime, we couldn't surf, and so we got involved in a home group. And we got involved in the home group of Fritz and Penny Velasquez. They go to this church now. And Kate and I went to that home group for seven years. And during that time, we started to get so hungry for the Word of God and for communing with the people of God that we joined several home groups. And there's a large stretch of our life where almost every night of the week we were in a different home group. Still weren't into the Sunday morning thing. That's when we served. But we were getting fed. We were growing. We were getting built up. We were getting held accountable in the home group setting. And it is there in that setting and there alone that the Lord grabbed our hearts. And all of a sudden we begin to desire for the larger experience of the body. We begin to say, we want to get together like Israel did with the larger body. We want to get together corporately and worship the Lord and be of one mind and one accord. And so we started committing ourselves to the Sunday morning gathering. And the Lord met us there. And in the two, we grew into healthy Christians. There's a tremendous work that God accomplished in our lives because both of them were functioning. You understand? It's God's design for accountability, discipleship, intimacy, depth of relationship and growth. And what it does for a church of this size when we get committed to the home groups is it seals off the cracks that people so easily fall through. It shuts the back doors of the church, so to speak, that people so easily slip out. When we start to get involved in each other's lives, then Christianity is forced to get real. And then you remove the excuse from people of, well, it's too big and I can't meet anybody or nobody knows me or nobody cares or I'm not being connected Well, of course you weren't. There's hundreds of people around you. It's really hard for those things to happen in this context. It is necessary that you break it down into the smaller group for accountability, discipleship, intimacy, depth of relationship, and growth. And the best way to ensure that our young church grows in depth as we grow in breadth is to be committed to the home group as we see modeled, in the New Testament. But there's one thing that is required of each of you for this vision to become a reality. And we see it in verse 42. The first phrase there says, and they were continually devoting themselves. Stop right there. We are told of these new believers, of these Christians, that they were continually devoting themselves. Continually devoting is one word in the Greek text, and it means essentially to cleave faithfully to something or someone. It refers to those who continually insist upon something or stay close to someone. The early church continually devoted themselves to what? We'll see in a moment. But does that describe you today? That in your Christianity, you are continually devoted to the things of God. That there is a commitment. There is a decision. There are spiritual non-negotiables in your life. That your spirituality in your life with Christ is not relegated to later or possibly then or if other things don't come up. That's true too often in American Christianity. It needs to be. In a sense, a personal responsibility before God that you, Christian, are continually devoted, clinging to, connected with, insistent upon the things of God that make for a healthy relationship with God. And so if we want to grow together in depth, fall more in love with the Lord and more in love with one another, it requires that you make a decision, that you say, I'm a, I'm a part of something larger, and that we are all interconnected. We're called the body of Christ. And if one part of the body removes itself, the whole body suffers. If one party does not function properly, the whole body suffers. If one part of that body is not healthy, the body suffers. We recognize today that it's not about you and you alone. Christianity was never meant to be. Christianity is about others and Jesus Christ. And to grow in relationship with those two, it requires that you are continually devoted to. Now, look what they were continually devoted to. The first thing what we see there is the apostles' teaching in verse 42. They continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was termed the apostles' teaching then is termed the New Testament now. They were continually devoted to the Word of God. They were devoted to correct doctrine. Doctrine was not a burdensome word to them. Doctrine simply means teaching. They were devoted to correct teaching. They wanted to know the things of God, the Word of God, and they wanted to act and live accordingly. It is reasonable for us to assume that what happened in the large gathering was broken down into application in the small gathering. Let me explain. It says that the church was gathered in large in the temple. And there's only one place in the temple where teachers taught Jesus would have taught there. That's where Peter would have taught in the day of Pentecost. And that is the Southern Steps. When we were in Israel, we saw the Southern Steps. We didn't go to them that day because it was raining. But we saw them from a vantage point. And the original Southern Steps of 2,000 years ago have been uncovered where Jesus stood and instructed the people when he taught in the temple. And where Peter would have stood on Pentecost. And so what would have happened in an early church is the church would have gathered there the apostles would have instructed the people in doctrine. Remember, they had been instructed by the Lord. They had been with him for three years, and then after his resurrection for 40 days, he instructed them in the things of the kingdom of God. And they were imparting these to the people in the large group context. It's reasonable to assume then that as they broke into the smaller groups and they went house to house, that they began to discuss what they had learned from the apostles. What does that mean? How does that compare with the rest of Scripture, the Old Testament? And how then should we apply these things to our lives? They were devoted to doing that. When we come here on Sunday morning, we receive instruction from the Word of God, by the Spirit of God. We become of one mind and one accord. And then in the home groups, we can break that down and you begin to study the Bible for yourself in an intimate setting. Because quite frankly, when you come here on Sunday morning, you, it's not a Bible study for you. You, you're not, you haven't studied the Bible. I study the Bible all week long. You're listening. That's wonderful. The Spirit of God is speaking, uniting our hearts, giving us common vision. But then in the small groups, you can roll up your sleeves and you can study the Bible. You can get into it and you can hold it and say, well, what about this passage? Don't do that here on Sunday morning. I'll ignore you. (laughs) Well, what about that? And I've always had this question and, well, I think it might mean that. And okay, well, how does that apply to my life? That's what takes place in those smaller settings. And it's so important for growth because listen, Christians grow word by word, not day by day. You understand that? It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. You are not mature unless you are investing time in the word of God. You could have been a Christian for 30 days and be totally immature, I mean 30 years, and be totally immature in your faith because you haven't been in the word of God. Christians grow word by word. You may have been a Christian for 30 days and there is a depth of maturity to your life because you've been soaking in the word of God. And so we want to give you, as the early church had Multiple occasions to dig into the word. Large context and an intimacy. The second thing that they are continually devoting themselves to here in our verse is to fellowship. This word, if you've heard of it before, is koinonia in Greek. And it means simply participation, communion, and companionship based on our commonality in Christ. But listen to those words. Participation. Communion companionship, participation in the gospel and the truths therein and participation in one another's lives. Fellowship requires that you become transparent, that you open up your lives to other people and go, all right, as messy as it is, as crazy as it is, here it is. Help me with this thing. And that others do the same to you. All right, man, here's my life. Here's my fears Here are my struggles. Here are my hopes and my dreams. Here's my uncertainties. Here are my commitments. Here's my other relationships. Here's my prayer life. Here's what I don't understand. Here's what I'm seeking for in the Lord. And then we work toward that together. Fellowship involves, koinonia involves loving one another. Jesus commanded in John 13. It involves sharing and confessing, as we're told by James in 5.16, that we are to confess our sins to one another and pray for one another that we might be healed. It involves restoring one another and bearing one another's burdens, as we saw in Galatians 6, 1 through 2. It involves building each other up, 1 Thessalonians 5.11 again. It involves spurring on, which means there's got to be some connection. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24, let us consider how we may stimulate or spur one another on toward loving good deeds. Spur is the word I like for that translation because it speaks of connection. If you're a cowboy and you have a spur on your heel, you want that horse to move, you've got to kick it. Spur don't do you any good if you ain't kicking it into the horse's side. But the moment you kick it, it's useful. Listen, we need to kick around each other's lives a little bit. You understand what I mean? We need to kick around each other's lives, get into a safe environment, which is what the home groups are to be, and open up our lives and open lives and spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And all the more as we see the day of the Lord approaching. Koinonia fellowship involves accountability. As we read in Hebrews chapter 3 that we are to watch over one another's hearts lest there be a hardening. And we also read in Ephesians 5.21 that we're to be subject to one another. That we're to submit ourselves to one another. Mutual submission, esteeming the other as more important than ourselves. That happens in relationship coupled with humility in the small group setting. And koinonia fellowship involves praise. Ephesians 5, 19 says that we are to be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. And Colossians 3, 16 and 17, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, one another. That's the whole meeting teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And so fellowship is a context for living out the biblical relational principles. It's where application takes place. It's where we do it. It's where we live out the reality of Christianity. The next thing that they were devoting themselves to there is the breaking of bread. And I love this. Home groups should involve food. When the church gets together in a home, there should always be food involved. Amen? Amen. In the early church, they had two things generally. They had the Lord's Supper. They would celebrate communion together but they also had, had what was called the agape feast or the love meal where everybody would bring food and they would just get together and feast in the name of Jesus. It was like a holy potluck, you know what I mean? And we ought to be doing that in our home groups. The church was known for these agape feasts where they would get together and sing spiritual hymns and songs to one another and teach and admonish and care for and watch out for and break bread. And in the Middle East context, breaking bread together is an intimate thing. It's not like you and I, we run down to Rudy's and we grab a burrito and we sit on the other side of the table together and we just are very careful that we don't double dip our chips in the salsa. Listen, the way that they do meals in the Middle East now, we just experience it on a trip to Israel, is the same way that they did it then. They would put out bowls of different salads and sauces and things to dip in. There would be pieces of flatbread and you would take the bread and you would break it. Remember, Jesus took the bread at the Last Supper and He broke it and he passed it around, and everybody would break off a piece, and then you start to dip in these sauces and these salads, and double dipping was bare minimum. That was par for the course. When the early church got together, there was no other way to eat. There was relationship, commonality, connectedness, and not only that, but when they ate, they reclined. And the way that they reclined was such that one's area of their head and their shoulders would be next to, almost against the chest area of another. They'd be reclining like this and another like this, sort of like little sideways dominoes. We read about that at the Last Supper when John was reclining upon the chest of Jesus. You remember that. All he simply did was take the weight off his elbow and go like that onto the chest of the Lord. And this is the way that they ate together at that time in the Middle East. Very intimate, very beautiful. It expressed relationship, connectedness, and care. The early church was devoted to it. The next thing we see that they were devoted to, last phrase there in verse 42, was prayer. The early church, amen, was devoted to prayer. And in the home group context, you will come in, and perhaps your, your countenance will be downcast one night. You'll, you'll look bummed out. Listen, you could come bummed out to church. You could come with blood coming out your ear and somebody might not notice. You show up in the home group and somebody's going to say, hey man, what's wrong? You look bummed out. What's going on? What's going on in your life? How can I pray? And you'll see others and there's just going to be a few of you there, you know what I mean? 10 to 20 and nobody can hide. And you'll see others and you go, hey, what's wrong? Let me pray for you. What's going on in your life? The early church were continually devoting themselves to prayer. And by the way, prayer is the place where information turns to application, prayer is the place that transforms mere information to application you will get a lot of information on Sunday mornings but it's in the home context as you pray and process the application takes place how do you get the word of God from your head to your heart well the distance from your head to the heart is the same distance from your feet to your knees Prayer is a place where application is made in our lives. And the early church continually devoted themselves to it. And because of it, there was tremendous growth and they flourished. Now, the next thing that we see will function in the home setting is in verse 43. It says, And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the Apostles. Many were feeling a sense of awe at what God was doing. We should feel that way today. God is doing a wonderful work on our coastline. If you don't realize that, you need to wake up and smell some coffee. The Lord is doing a wonderful work on our coastline. There's more to come. I believe the Lord has just begun. He's going to do wonderful things in our midst. But there were signs and wonders taking place. Listen, I expected in our home group, signs and wonders are going to take place. Because it is the perfect, it is the biblical place for the gifts to be played out. Look at First Corinthians. we have it on the PowerPoint, verse fourteen or chapter fourteen, verse twenty six, where Paul writes, "What is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Paul was writing to the house churches, the home gatherings in Corinth, and he said, when you guys get together, each one can bring something to the table. Each one has a spiritual gift that ought to be used. Now, we can't possibly be doing it here, where there's 500 of us at one time. It would take all day long. You think church is long now? It would be crazy if every one of us, was expressing or sharing something or had a revelation or a tongue and interpretation, so on and so forth. But in the small group, in the home group setting, there is an opportunity, nay, a responsibility for your spiritual gifts to be functioning. You understand that? For your spiritual gift to be functioning. You have a gift. For all of you, it's not necessarily evangelism. Maybe it's not necessarily happening in the workplace or in the school for you. And and your primary gift says, I want to get together with believers and I want to speak into their lives. God has given me the gift of prophecy. I want to share with them. God has given me the gift of exhortation. I want to encourage them. God has given me the gift of compassion and mercy or helps. And I want to come alongside people. But I come to Reality carpentry on a Sunday morning and it's hard for me to do that. I'm just not sure where to get connected. The home group. You walk into that setting and those people need what you have. They need your spiritual gifts and you need theirs. And it reminds us of the priesthood of the saints. A New Testament doctrine that every Christian is called to be a priest in the sense that we all have a ministry and are to walk in it and fulfill it. Now the next thing that we see was happening in the early church is giving and sharing. Acts chapter 2, again, verses 44 through 45. It says, And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And so today, as you sign up for home groups, we're going to require that you sell all your stuff and that you bring it here to me. No, just kidding. But the early church did that. What an incredible move of God. I mean, these people actually did that. This is not made up. They actually said, listen, we are so in love with Jesus. We are so in love with one another. These people have need. I'm selling my junk and I'm providing for these people. They lived in the imminent return of Jesus Christ and the hope thereof. And they said, what's mine is yours. It's incredible. You may not sell all that you own and give it to someone else, but I'll tell you what. In the home context, you will be called upon to give. There will be people there that are lacking. There will be spiritual, emotional, financial, physical needs. And that small group will be called upon to meet those needs. I see that you're hurting. I want to help. I see that you're lacking. I want to help. I see that this Christmas is thin and difficult for you. I want to give. The early church did that. That should be the model for our church. And the best place for that to unfold weekly is in that relationship Small group context. When all these things take place, those biblical relational principles in the small home setting, and then the large gathering where the Lord imparts to us vision and makes us of one mind and one accord, and we're encouraged, when this is taking place, then you have a healthy church, and not before. As I said previously, We're doing pretty good in the large gathering part. But church, we need to commit ourselves to the home group fellowships. We need to commit ourselves to intimacy and relationship, to living out our Christianity in the midst of one another's lives because that is the way that God designed it. And we desire together to have a healthy, vibrant, functioning, impactful church. Not a church that seeks to be relevant to the world, a church that wants to be relevant to Jesus Christ. And so we've got to grab onto that sense of personal responsibility, continually devoting yourself to the model of scripture of both meetings, the large and the small. I suggest that it's difficult for a Christian to be healthy if he has one but not the other. And when we become healthy as a church, then we will see the church doing things in the world as it's meant to do, namely evangelism, missions, caring for widows and orphans and providing for the poor. That's what the church is to be about in these last days. Outreach and evangelism, missions to the nations, James one twenty-seven: visiting widows and orphans in their distress and not neglecting the poor, that is the job of the church. And when we function as a healthy church, listen, those things are going to happen naturally. It's going to be the outflow. It's going to be the fruit. People are going to be going to the nations. People are going to be sharing Jesus in the workplace and at their school. People are going to be visiting those who have been left alone. People are going to be providing for the needy. It's going to happen when we're healthy. And we see in verse 47 that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. You see, the Lord's going to grow the church in number, but we have got to be cognizant of and purposeful in determining to grow in depth. It can only be done together in relationship. This is the vision and the goal that God has given our church. It is from the Lord and it is biblical. And responsibility dictates that you get on board and submit yourself to the vision. If you become part of the vision, then you become a contributing member to the health of the church. If you don't participate in the vision and the direction that God is leading us to, then you put yourself on the outside, so to speak. You put yourself in the place of spectator. And let me tell you who the spectator becomes. The spectator always becomes the connoisseur. You don't want to be a connoisseur when it comes to Christianity because the connoisseur always becomes the critic and the critic always becomes the disgruntled and the disgruntled inevitably becomes the disenfranchised who becomes the disappointed. God has given us a vision of the large and the small gathering. It is your responsibility as the Lord calls us to engage, to keep ourselves from being critics and saying it's too big, it's too hard, it's too this. If there's a problem in the church, you're a part of it. If something good is happening in the church, you're a part of it. We are connected. Can't get away from one another. We are the body of Christ. That is God's design. I'm going to finish by reading an extra biblical description of early Christians. Extra-biblical meaning it's not in the Bible. It was written by somebody named Aristides. And this is found in the Encyclopedia Britannica. And he describes what early Christians were like. I end just by reading this. He says, They abstain from all impurity in the hope of the recompense that is to come in another world. As for their servants or handmaids or children, they persuade them to become Christians by the love they have for them. And when they become so, they call them without distinction brothers. They do not worship strange gods, and they walk in all humility and kindness, and falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. When they see the stranger, they bring him into their homes and rejoice over him as over a true brother. For they do not call those who are after the flesh brother, but those who are in the Spirit and in God." And there is among them a man that is poor and needy, and if they have not an abundance of necessities, they fast two or three days that they may supply the needy with the necessary food. They observe scrupulously the commandment of their Messiah. They live honestly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Every morning and all hours, on account of the goodness of God toward them, they render praise and loud him over their food and their drink. They render him thanks. And if any righteous person of their number passes away from this world, they rejoice and give thanks to God and they follow his body as though he were moving from one place to another. And when a child is born to them, they praise God. And if again it chances to die in its infancy, they praise God mightily as for one who has passed through the world without sins. Such is the law of the Christians and such is their conduct. Wow. That's biblical authentic, real Christianity. That is what the Lord is calling our church to. And he's revealed to us today how we get there. Now in front of every seat, there's a sign up for home groups. Listen, you can either sign up right now or you can take it home and pray about it and think about it. I don't want it to be a coercive thing. I definitely don't want you to sign up planning to flake out because if you sign up, people are going to call you and say, here's where we're meeting. We've got home groups in Goleta, home groups in Santa Barbara, home groups in Summerlin, home groups in Carpinteria, and home groups in Ventura. We've got one specifically for men before work at 6 a.m. on Wednesday morning. We've got one specifically for people who want to get involved in missions. We've got one on Friday night for people that need childcare. There's all sorts of options every night of the week. And so you have the opportunity, now or in the coming couple weeks, they don't start until February, to put feet to your faith. But I want you to ponder what we've spoken about today and to honor the Lord in your relationship with the rest of his body. Amen? Lord, thank you so much for speaking to us and guiding and directing us today. Spirit of God, I ask that you would burn upon our hearts and minds the things that you have spoken to us. Lord, we so desire to honor you in this church. It is your church. We know it's not a building. The church is the people. Gathered together underneath the person, the mediator Christ Jesus. But we want to be healthy in our relationships with one another and you. So Holy Spirit of God, make it so. In Jesus' name, amen.